With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Very quickly, before we get into today's show, um, if you play Fantasy Surfer, now's the time to set in your team and uh, send your wager in if you participate in that. Um, this will be the last time you hear from me before the Quicksilver Pro France starts for the men's side of the WSL. All right, so if you um, do that, great. If you don't but you want to, go to surfsplendorpodcast.com, and there's a tab for Fantasy Surfer. It gives you all the instructions for how to participate in that, and you can find everything that you need there. All right? Thanks for playing. Enjoy today's show. Why are there so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side? Welcome back to today's show. I'm your host, David Scales. David Davis is the guest on today's show. Davis is a journalist and the author of the new book, Waterman, The Life and Times of Duke Kahanamoku. It is, in fact, the very first comprehensive biography on Duke, if you can believe that. I know a lot has been written about Duke, and we obviously mention his name often. Um, And there's kind of this mythology that is developed around him. But in Waterman, Davis takes a very journalistic approach to researching the facts of the man himself. Uh, He provides social, political, and cultural context that helps... Well, help me anyways, understand, better understand Hawaii itself and just how astounding some of Duke's accomplishments really were. Um, Because you already know a lot of the highlights of Duke's life, we really focus this conversation on just getting to know the personality of Duke. We discuss some of the adversity that he faced, which I was unaware of um, financially, racially, And then we also discuss some of the misconceptions that the public has about Duke Kahanamoku. All in all, it was a really enlightening read, the book itself, and the conversation was a really enlightening one to have with David Davis. And it really just adds a lot of color and humanity to the iconic figure of Duke Kahanamoku. So anyway, enjoy this conversation. The book, Waterman, will be released on October 1st. Uh, via Nebraska Press. We'll have a link to purchase it on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Um, but of course, you can find it on Amazon or wherever you normally purchase books. And lastly, we recorded this conversation over coffee near Davis's home in LA. So you'll have to forgive any noise created by passing traffic. All right, 
Here's David Davis. I've heard it too many times to ignore it. It's something that I'm supposed to be. Someday we'll find it. The rainbow connection. The lovers, the dreamers, and me. You're welcome to keep this in. Uh, do God among it. Well, yeah, I mean, just an, on a general level, just an amazing story from perspective of American history and Hawaiian history. Um, somebody who was born in 1890 in Hawaii at the time when Hawaii was an independent kingdom. And by the time he was 10 years old, uh, Hawaii was an American uh, territory. And that changed the course of his life. Um, in some ways opened doors that might not have been open to him. In particular, that he was then able to go for the U.S. Olympic team. Right. And at that time, uh, you know, the Olympics were just starting out. They had started in 1896. Um, so they were just starting to become a sort of a social force and a, and a worldwide uh, phenomenon that the media would cover. And Duke comes along and uh, starts swimming competitively in 1911 and sets immediately sets world records. This is in Honolulu Harbor, and he swims at that time all outdoors. So you're you know you've got the current dealing with tide, wind, everything, and wearing these ridiculous uh, one-piece wool bathing suits. Right. That, you know, must have slowed their times by seconds and seconds. Absolutely. Yeah. So he, he really starts as an athlete, um, even though this is, a, you know, for, for, for the surfers and the surfing audience, um, he was surfing all this time, but he really get, gets fame and renown internationally as a swimmer. And in particular, he goes to uh, Stockholm in 1912 and wins a gold medal in the 100 meters and a silver medal in the relay and comes home a national hero uh, at the same time as Jim Thorpe is coming home right. and again to to add another aspect to his life I mean he's a dark skinned Hawaiian at a time when very few either African American or you know non-white athletes have a chance to even participate in major sports there's no you know, there's the Negro Leagues. There's no, there's no blacks in the in Major League Baseball. That type sure. of thing. So that's really the start. And um, as I met, I sort of skipped ahead to talk about the Olympics. Um, Duke was born and raised on Oahu, uh, in Waikiki for most of his life. So he was really born by the ocean. Um, right. Family grew up there, in in the area, Kalia. Um, and which is now totally overrun by hotels, etc. Yeah. But at the time was sort of this, uh, and, and not to romanticize it, but it was very much a haven, natural haven, fishing going on. Everybody sort of who lived there had a very um, uh, close relationship to the water, sure. to the ocean. That was part of their world. And one of the reasons we titled the book Waterman is, and as I'm sure you guys know, uh, that's such. It was such an important part of the Hawaiian culture. Mm -hmm. A waterman was didn't matter what you were doing. You know that you're a lawyer or a doctor. If right. you're a waterman, 
you were important. You knew the tides. You knew where the best fishing was. You knew when it was cool to surf at this point or that break. Right. That sort of thing. Um, it's a name that's kind of been misused and overused now to refer to somebody who's really good at surfing or sailing. But I think at that time, as you're saying, it was you had to be good at everything. Right. You know, exactly. number one for survival. Number two for acquiring food and that sort of stuff. Absolutely. So. And, and transportation. I mean, you, yeah. were a, you were a paddler. You know, you were a canoer. You were this and that. And, and it was this sort of all-around game. Right. And I, I give a lot of... Uh, cre- I, I give a lot of credit to surfing for Duke's development as a swimmer. Sure. And I don't think some of the Olympic people understand that. I mean, the fact that he, at the time, it, you know, at that time, we're talking, what, 16-foot boards? Right. 125-pound yep. redwood planks. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine running through the sand in that. Yeah. Imagine having to handle that and, and paddle out with that yeah. and balance on that. Yep. That's got to help your... That's like cross-training before there was such a thing. Totally. And and this is, by the way, sort of going off on a tangent here, but this is, you know, before weightlifting or anything like that. Right. And when you look at photos of Duke, I mean, he's this muscular, you know, well-built dude. And I, I give a lot of credit to the fact that he was surfing and, mm-hmm. and what he had to do to surf in those years. And, and that could only have helped his, his swimming. Sure. You've kind of made reference to it a little bit through the things that you've just said, but can you paint a picture of Hawaii um, culturally and politically, you know, in 1890 when Duke was born? Yeah, uh, very complex. It's, it, it's, um, it's in the, I mean, in its, in its placement in the Pacific, it's in sort of the crossroads of the Pacific, um, and so there are a lot of influences at the time and a lot of competing uh, nations who see Hawaii as this very strategic spot in the Pacific. And at a time when, uh, on the mainland, there are a lot of political commentators who are expressing interest in America going beyond uh, the mainland, right, and, exp- and and moving its sphere of influence beyond just the continental U.S. and and that's a change uh, coming out of the Civil War, et cetera. That's sure. a change, um, and so there's there's quite a bit of uh, uh, talk in Washington about the importance of Hawaii. So there, so we know the American interests, and and there are certainly um, some of the missionaries who had landed there in the early 1800s had now they're now two or three generations on there's um so that's that's from the american point of view there's also uh japan starting to spread its influence out beyond its borders and beyond uh, japan and there's the european powers who are of course very very strong germany uh, prussia um, and england who have interests in the South Pacific and beyond. So Hawaii is seen as this very exotic place. Not many people have been there by then. It's it's a long ways from, you know, continental, uh, you know, the west coast of the United sure. States and, and Japan. Um, it's seen as this idyllic place, and yet it's seen as this strategic place. And at the time, and you asked about Hawaii, at the time there it's controlled by a monarchy, uh, but it's but their power has been 
diffused and a lot for various machinations, which will take another podcast. Sure. Uh, for various machinations, their power has been reduced. And so um, in 1890, when Duke is born, there's sort of this tug of war going on as to who will control Hawaii uh, in the future. And um, as we find out, um, it is America who sort of, um, in various ways, not not all um, ways that we you know we we are very proud of in some ways I would say uh, take take over Hawaii, and as I said it it changes the course of Duke's life it changes the course of Hawaii um, and Hawaiian culture and um, and this idyllic uh, spot is now going to be part of. You know, American and American hegemony in terms of military, mm-hmm. and it does become very early on. They start building out, um, you know, Pearl Harbor sure. as a strategic naval base mm-hmm. and other interests in American military, mm-hmm. and um, that's part of our legacy. Good, yeah. bad, or indifferent. Absolutely. Um, we'll carry on with Duke's kind of biography, but um, before we do, I'm interested in. Um, what was your objective with writing the book? I mean, there's obviously a few Duke bios out there, maybe not super comprehensive versions, right. but what was your objective with the book? Yeah, I mean, it, on a very basic level, it was to tell, tell a story of someone, of Duke, who I did not feel had been, um, uh, had not had the full treatment of a, of a comprehensive biography. Okay. And, and yes, there have been quite a bit of works done uh, on him, but I felt that the full sort of treatment was not there. And I, uh, to, uh, I'll be honest, I, I came about it, and I brought this to show you. Yeah. This was the first book I did, and this was about the 1908 Olympics. Okay. And, when, and it's called Showdown at Shepherd's Bush. And one of, this was about the 1908 Olympics. And followed three characters who competed in the marathon race. And there was some spillover to 1912. And so I was researching the 1912 Olympics. And there's been a bunch of biographies of Jim Thorpe and so on and so forth. And I looked around for a solid, comprehensive biography of Duke. And I didn't see one. Yeah. And I, I'll be honest with that. If I had seen one, I probably wouldn't sure. have done it. Sure. Um, I felt that this was a. I felt that Duke was a man whose legacy had been overlooked mm-hmm. in certain ways. I think he's been venerated in the surf community he has, in yeah. a in a very positive way, in a, in a great way. But I think his Olympic career has sort of been overshadowed. I also think his role as a, a pioneer in in race in sports in mm-hmm. America. Has has totally been overlooked. Yeah, and well, so a lot of a lot of different sports too. I mean, we kind yeah. of the surfing community knows him for spreading surfing throughout the world. But as you point out in the book, beach volleyball, stand up paddling. There's a lot of other things as well. A- absolutely, yeah. and and I I take it even a step further now, and so you look at, I mean, we in the surf community, it's you know he's the godfather, the father of sure. modern day surfing, and I I think that's pretty accurate. I would say he's the godfather father of really extreme sports because you, you don't have skateboarding without yeah. surfing. 
right. you don't have snowboarding without surfing. Sure. And so if you trace those all back to Duke, well, that's an amazing legacy. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing legacy. And anyway, that's that's what I wanted to get at. And and I write in the introduction. There's been so much myth built around him. Right. I also wanted to see. Hey, let's let's get the facts straight. Sure. And then people can judge or not judge. Yeah. Uh, what's happened on things? I think you successfully do that. I think. Um, Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Like the book is written very clearly, and there's obviously a lot of fact in it um, that just is easy to digest and understand. And it still it doesn't um, separate any of. I don't know my ideal of him. It just kind of props up the ideal that I already have of him. Um, cool. Yeah, cool. so I think it's really well done. What What were some of the inaccuracies that you found? Are Are there any legends, let's say, that you found to be historically inaccurate? Yeah, there, there was. There's a long list, and and partly I I, I give some of the blame to Duke. Okay. Because <laughs> I I wish he had just sort of said, well, this is the way it happened. You right. know, here, here, here. Well, not, that's <laughs> not to say though that he was like a self promoter hyping no. himself. It was the opposite, right? Ex- exactly. So you're saying he should have just rather than <laughs> he, sitting in the background, he should have he should have set the record straight. Right. Uh, right. But but you're right. His personality was to be unassuming and right. not to boast or anything. Um, and the few interviews that that he did, they would always, and it was so frustrating as a as a researcher because they would always just talk about the same things. Right. And and I was sitting there in the background listening to these old interviews, going, "Ask him about this. Sure. Ask him about that." Uh, so a few things, um, uh, and and some of these I haven't been able to resolve because there wasn't the concrete evidence. So which is also sort of frustrating. Um, but one thing that's been written a lot about as a swimmer um, was his big race against Johnny Weissmuller at the 1924 Olympics. And the buildup of this race was like two years coming. Mm. And Johnny had gone to Hawaii to challenge him. Duke had been sick and was moving to Los Angeles. So they didn't meet. They only met for the first time at the Olympic trials. And Johnny won. Johnny Weissmuller was in his prime, was probably better than Duke in Duke's prime, but was just younger and well-coached. Duke was older by this time. Uh, But there was this thought that he would nip Johnny at the Olympics. Anyway, cut to Paris. Uh, They line up, and the myth has always been that uh, Johnny raced against Duke and Duke's brother Sam Kahanamoku and Johnny was in the middle between them and that there, and he was frightened because you know he's surrounded by two brothers and he was worried that you know how is he going to handle this and so forth and there's a whole mythology built around the guys before the race what they were saying to each other that sort of thing well we have the photos of that race and Sam is in lane one and Duke and, and Johnny are in like lane five and six or something. Mm. So they're not scrunched right. up together. And this whole mythology has been built up of them shaking hands and doing this. Not true at all. Um, the mythology is more dramatic. Exactly. I like it. I exactly. want to believe it. <laughs> exactly. Um, in terms of surfing, there's a lot of mythology about was Duke the first oh, to do, sure. you know, dot, dot, dot. And was he the first to surf Australia? Sure. When he went down there in 1914, 1915. 
some a lot of his Duke's boosters and historians have said, oh yeah, he brought it down there, and after that, it all you know Australia adopted surfing, and you know dot dot dot. Well, probably there were a few people surfing before Duke was there. I mean, and, and he's quoted as saying, oh, all these surfers, he was out in Sydney, and oh, all these surfers around. Wow, a okay. lot, of, lot of crowd here. Right. So there's not necessarily evidence that those people exist, but he references it. Yes. Right. Um, same thing with uh, surfing. People have said, oh, he was the first to surf, to bring surfing to California. Well... Not really. We, right. we know George Freeth was here, gosh, uh, 1908, 1910, that era. Yeah. He had been brought over to, to surf in South Bay, Redondo, and, sure. and that area. And we knew there was a little bit of surfing action yeah. uh, in, in California. So, so that sort of thing. Well, I'm interested in terms as a, as a researcher, like there's a rich... Um, tradition of like oral history in Hawaii for sure and um, and at the same time there's people who still live that existed that were friends with Duke like Paul Stroud Jr. and stuff like that and right. I, was, I actually interviewed Dave Parmeter um, like last month or so and uh, for the podcast and we were just kind of commenting how like oral history certainly leaves gaps in inaccuracies in terms of detail but what it does successfully is kind of convey the vibe of the experience or the theme or whatever. I'm wondering um, what was your process for researching the book? Um, who'd you interview? That sort of stuff. Right. Well, I, I interviewed as many people as I could, and that was a that was in, totally enlightening. Somebody like Paul Strau was incredibly helpful, um, and would if I had if I ran into uh, something that I couldn't understand or wanted to ask. I'd pick up the phone and call Paul or see him somewhere at an event. Totally open and totally, totally great. There were others, uh, frankly, in Duke's family um, and in Hawaii who who did not want to talk to me. Oh, really? Yeah. And I I don't take that. I didn't take it personally. Um, I'm. I understand. I'm not sort of. Uh, part of the that world, you yeah. know. I'm I'm here in Southern California. I'm sort of researcher, writer, guy, and I respect their um, that they didn't want to talk to me. Yeah, I, I, I'm 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 disappointed, but I, I, I you know, not nothing to, I can do. Not to um, steer you off the point, but just as a side note, one thing that I found interesting was that Duke's wife. Um, basically donated the estate after she died outside of the family. And so it seems like the family, maybe not all the family, but some members of the family feel like they've lost a little bit of control over the legacy in that respect. Yeah, and that's that's a huge, huge point. And it was... And I think one of the reasons for some people's not wanting to talk to me. And, and they were... It's not like they slammed doors in no, my face. Sure. They were just polite and said, you know, I'm good. Right. Thanks. Sure. And, and there were um, probably, I mean, you mentioned Paul Stroud, and Paul was great. But remember, Paul was, you know, a child when Duke was older. Sure. Uh, you know, Paul's 25 when Duke is 75 or right. so. Right. So Paul didn't know Duke, you know, there's Duke only... Duke was young, yeah. Yeah, there's only <laughs> a few people still alive who have that I, I, I was only able to interview a few people Got on it. that and and that's 
that's disappointing and I I as a as a researcher writer I own that and I go you know what there's maybe room for another other Duke Kahanamoku biographies if if there's stuff that people have that I you know that I wasn't able to uncover but but I certainly made a lot of trips to Hawaii that was the basis of my research yeah and uncovered every interview I could find of Duke um, whether it was going to um, or about Duke whether it was going to New York or North Carolina or wherever to find those tapes and to listen to them and hear his voice and try to get it that way it, it'd be interesting to see how the books received by those people who maybe declined to be interviewed and um, if they'd be more willing second time around agreed yeah. agreed and I um, uh, I, I hope they will take the time to read it and yeah. comment on it and and see how see how I did. Yeah, totally. <laughs> what was what was the most surprising thing that you learned through that process of researching? Surprising. Ah, yeah. I, to, on a, I, this is going to sound uh, well, not self-serving, but I honestly didn't know how big a hero he was. Uh, I didn't know how big a figure he was. Yeah. The hero's hero, as I think Pesman or somebody put it. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, in a sense, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Sure. Uh, and maybe that, maybe that, in that sense, ignorant was bliss because I, <laughs> I might have been intimidated. Yeah. <laughs> um, totally. But there was a comment that a reporter made, Bob Considine made, uh, about Duke. And, and, and this is after Duke had retired and he was the sheriff of Honolulu and, you know, sort of in his uh, dotage a little bit. And, and and Bob's comment was, Duke Hanamoku is in Hawaii is Babe Ruth and Jack Dempsey combined, and when you think about that, that's huge, huge. That's huge. There's and nobody comparable, really. There is nobody comparable, and and that that that's the most surprising. He was that big, and um, I don't think there's. And I tried to find a sports hero who you could say was so closely identified with a place and with his either where he was born and raised or where he became a hero or whatever then do well that that's a great point i don't think there's anybody so intrinsically synonymous in, yeah. yeah synonymous with hawaii and hawaiianness and waikiki and you know well let me ocean. ask you this i think it's pretty evident how hawaii informed duke how do you think that Duke has, you know, informed Hawaii? Well, great question. Um, and, and a difficult question because I think um, before, I, before I answer it, it's, it, in some ways one of Duke's biggest roles was to educate the world about Hawaii um, and to show Hawaii, here I am and you know, he uh, his mantra was about the aloha spirit and right. this welcoming vibe that he gave off, and I I think that's what he brought to the world. And I think towards the end of his life, he regretted some of that. He regretted really? this welcoming because he had seen, you know, by the time of the end of his life, late we're talking, you know, 1968. So Honolulu and and Waikiki was built up sure with you know hotels and condos and and tourists and all that 
in a way that was starting to you could start to see the the slippery slope that was headed yeah and, and it, it involved surfing to some degree that the surf spots were getting overrun right and not just by more people but also the environment and there were a couple of instances where he was fighting to preserve reefs and things like that and i don't think he you know if you had told him sure down the line this is what's going to happen to your homeland you know he was so proud of his homeland he was so uh, you know he wanted people to to love it as much as he did that in a sense uh, i think he felt a little bit um that it had gone overboard hiring for a small business is critical it's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. And you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is LinkedIn.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Well, what I would argue for Duke would be that that um, I don't know all the tourism and all that stuff was going to come with or without Duke and I think that it's important to have somebody there you know um, championing Aloha and the preservation and all that sort of thing and that he was obviously the best guy for it so maybe he expedited the process by 10 years or something but if we didn't have him, who knows what it would be like today? Right. No, and I, I, I he, and he didn't single-handedly do this. No, I of mean, course. Uh, of course. And you know, I think World War II really accelerated the process because there were so many uh, veterans and and army and navy personnel who you know went through Hawaii and then when they went home, you know, to the to the East Coast or to Cleveland said, you know, I, I maybe want to go back to uh, right. to Honolulu and right. live there. Yeah. Uh, and they were smart about that. 
Um, so let's get kind of back to his timeline and biography. Yep. Basically, champion, you know, medalist, swimmer, um, surfer, just as recreation and hobby. But because of his celebrity status as an Olympian, was able to travel the world and then just spread surfing, basically, which might not have been his intention, but it was what he enjoyed doing when he went to places that had coastline. I'm curious, or one thing that I kind of, I don't know that I had ever really thought about it until I read the book, was just, um, financially, how do you travel the world, (laughs) you know, and what is his source of income, and it turns out that he had a lot of different jobs throughout that time, and didn't necessarily ever have a tremendous amount of financial success throughout his life, struggled, in fact, financially at times. What did it look like, basically? Yeah, no, you're right. And it, it was a central um, element of his life and um, and controversial. And I, you asked me before about um, maybe some of the things that surprised me, you know, what surprised me in the research. One of the things that did surprise me was that, for instance, in 1913, after his Olympic success, um, the... The fans and and the people of Hawaii contributed money for a fund for Duke, and they bought him a house and his family. Just as a thank you for putting and, Hawaii on the map, basically. Exactly, right. and to say, hey, you know, and they, they recognize that, hey, this look, Duke was a high school dropout. Right. He, he, his family, you know, his dad was working uh, with the police department, but you know, they had eight eight kids. Right. Uh, you know, together. And so they were, they were fine. They they always had food. They 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 were doing okay, but they certainly weren't, you know, reaching out into the next class. And uh, for Duke, Duke enable for him to win the medals. It's kind of like you have to devote a lot of time towards right. swimming. Exactly. Can't devote a lot of time towards a day job. Exactly. Yeah. And and yet, what's interesting about that um, house, almost as a symbol. Um, it should have disqualified him from swimming in the 1920 Olympics and 1924 Olympics. In other words, back then there was an amateur code. You were the Olympics were strictly amateur. You could not receive money, and that's what got Jim Thorpe into so much trouble. Right. After his, and he got stripped of all his medals. Right. The Hawaiian, uh, the Hawaiians who helped Duke and get this house were very smart. They put it in a trust. And he was an a- he was able to keep swimming yeah. as an amateur, even though he was uh, technically a professional. Sure. So uh, that's one example of how, over the years, he did get help mm-hmm. from the community. They supported him. the The Hawaii Tourism uh, uh, Council, in a sense, supported some of his efforts when he needed money to go to. Uh, swim meets in San Francisco, for instance, they would pay his way right. and, and help him get there. Right. And in return, he was expected to be, you know, the ambassador of Aloha. Sure. And, and he performed very well. He would oftentimes, if there were events or something, he would be appearing. He would, there were, he would go to World's Fairs and, and represent Hawaii there and then swim at the, at the swim meet on the side and so forth. Right. So, he sort of cobbled together a living. Um, there were times when it was patronage. There was times when it was sort of controversial. Um, he was, for a time, basically, you know, a janitor of right. sorts. And um, 
and yet he always he knew he had to work. So he he, he sort of took it, um, and eventually he was positioned by the by the powers that be to run for sheriff. And once he attained that position, which was in the mid thirties, he was basically okay. Had a little more stability. Yeah. Uh, but he was, you know, in his 40s at that point. At so, that point, right. Yeah. And, you know, when he, he got married uh, towards the end of the decade, at the time um, when he and his wife went to buy a house, they had to get a loan from a friend to right. buy, the, buy the house. Yeah, exactly. Very different than modern times where you can, um, you know, brand yourself and do all sorts of commercial endorsements and stuff like that, which he did later in his career, obviously. Yes. In the, in the 60s, and that's a totally interesting chapter, really when he, he gets aligned with surfing to, to the degree that he's so aligned with surfing today. Sure. Um, but, but it is interesting. He did do um, an endorsement, and again, he should have been banned from the Olympics, but he did an endorsement for, for a product, um, and it Probably the first endorsement by a surfer, yeah. you know, Valspar, which was a, right. which was like a shellac that he used for his surfboard, or he right. said he used for his surfboard. Right. So I've got a list of a couple of <laughs> careers just that I'll mention. <laughs> yeah. We don't have to discuss at length, but he was a draftsman in the public works department, which is just a normal <laughs> nine to five job, basically. Yep. Obviously, he did some Hollywood acting. Yes. Which. Um, Kind of the interesting detail about that in the book is just that, you know, he's never fully accepted as a leading man. It's more playing ethnic roles, that sort of thing. Um, he was a lifeguard, obviously. As you mentioned, sheriff of Honolulu, to which he was reelected 13 times. Yes. It's yes. pretty impressive. Yes. And um, had a little bit of a political career as well. He advocated for statehood. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, the Hollywood chapter. Right. We talked about... Um, adversity that he faced financially. Can you tell me more about adversity that he faced, maybe racially or otherwise? Because yeah. we just think of him as just being this hero, but come to find out, it wasn't that easy. Right. And I, and again, I think the Hollywood chapter uh, I think breaks some ground from some of the other ones which either, they either sort of lightly go, oh, and he was an extra in these movies, and they'd name a bunch of movies and then move on. Or they would say inaccurately, "Oh, he was a Hollywood star." Well, he was nothing close to a sure. star. He did have a name, a big name, an Olympic name, and and Hollywood is attracted to that. Always has been. Um, and there were certainly movies where his name was was up there, but at the time, the the color line, so to speak, was as drawn in Hollywood as it was in professional sports. Got it. And there would be no way that you could have sort of the dark-skinned man be the romantic hero or the swashbuckling guy to get the girl and so forth. And, I mean, I, I bring this up in the book. I mean, how cool would it have been to have Duke be a surfing hero you know, in a series of shorts in which, you know, he could have rescued people, which he did in real life and done some things that would have shown off surfing way before, you know, the 60s and the 50s when surfing movies becomes, become real. Absolutely. Big. I, somebody with imagination could have done that <laughs> right, with right, Duke, right, right. and they just didn't get him. And they didn't also get his personality. Right. He was quiet and so forth, but when you see him, rare glimpses on the screen... I mean, he really pops out. He's got it. He's got it. Yeah. There's a, there's a, 
there's a short there's a, there was a comedian named Charlie Chase he was sort of below the Buster Keaton Charlie Chaplin Harold Lloyd uh, guys but he he and Duke were were pals I think they were members of the Los Angeles Athletic Club together okay and there's a short that he did and you see Duke on the beach lo- lounging and you see him running you see him swimming actually and and, and we have very few clips yeah. of him right and he's just I mean he, your eyes just are drawn to him yeah and I I I, I, I feel I mean it, it, it was sort of heartbreaking to go over that Hollywood career because I think he came here with some expectations that he would be a star yeah and very soon it, it, it became apparent that he really wasn't but as you say he made a living for a while I think at the time he was a little discouraged by what was going on in Hawaii to be honest okay and he needed a break and he had friends here in Southern California he was sort of adopted by some leaders of the Los Angeles Athletic Club and sort of gave him a home for a while yeah as he was transitioning from you know competitive Olympic swimmer towards okay what's next right you know which is not easy for any athlete sure elite athlete sure uh, to transition to well there's um, there's that but there's very specific examples of him like being denied service in restaurants and stuff like that because of the color of his skin correct so. um, he was I mean Hawaiian you know it was rare it was a rare sighting at right. that time um, there wasn't as much you know you had to get on a boat to get across so not that many people only the rich could afford to go to Hawaii so when Duke was over here he was often apparently mistaken as African American or Native Indian and there were occasions and he didn't talk much about this again and again if I could have put myself back in time to interview him it would have been to say what happened with that right what were those incidents like, and how did you feel? Yeah, how did that affect him? And right, and and it must have. It yeah. must have been. I mean, here you are, a gold medalist, and and you can't get a, a meal at a restaurant. Right. I wanted to ask you just to retell a story or two that you found particularly interesting. The one that I pulled up is one that's been told a lot. Um, which maybe you want to tell this one. Maybe you have another that you find more compelling. But just about him, you know, rescuing the eight people in Corona Del Mar yeah. is a great story. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's the one I was going to pick yeah. uh, because it's so amazing. And um, actually, the I I was mentioning that Charlie Chase, mm-hmm. he had just filmed that. Um, I was able to figure out like he had just filmed that, and and uh, they took a break with some buddies from the Los Angeles Athletic Club. They went to Corona Del Mar, which at the time was probably the primo Vacation. surf spot. Oh, surf spot. Yeah. It was before some of the uh, eddy, the, the Jetties, jetty had yeah. been uh, built out, and at that time it was among the best. Yeah. Um, and they had been exploring that site for a couple of years, and, they, I mean, Duke had been coming over since 1913, so they knew this spot well. So they were down there to do some surfing. Um, it was, I guess, June of 1925, and the, the the waves were kicking up that day, big time. And a fishing boat from Riverside, uh, or a fishing boat that was manned by a, a guy from Riverside, California, full of people just going out to do, get some abalone, uh, went out, and as they were trying to get out to the ocean... 
um, they got slammed by these waves. And the ship called the Thelma got capsized, turned over, and these guys are flailing in the water. Duke is watching all this from the from the sand, from the beach. He uh, grabs his board and paddles out and just starts manhandling these guys and putting them on his board, paddling back in, while all this, you know, craziness is going on with the ship and people screaming and yelling. He goes out, they, they say three times, rescues eight people who probably would have lost their lives. So puts a couple on the board, paddles them in, heads back out, couple more, paddles them in, right. heads back out the third time. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, he's, the other guys are sort of working over the, the people he's rescued, whether it's CPR or some sort of just holding them and rescuing, you know, putting them in. And, and by, by the end, you know, several people did die. Um, and Duke, again, had like one line to say about rescuing all these people. He just said basically, well, it had to be done and I did it. Yeah. And, I mean, he was given all sorts of, he was given awards by the Los Angeles Athletic Club and so forth. But, my gosh, it... it Single-handedly it, rescued eight people. Right. And, and in so doing, he also showed the importance of a surfboard. Right. That it wasn't just this... You know, this crazy thing that Hawaiians did to have some fun. Now, this thing has some use. Right. And certainly in Southern California for lifeguarding and so forth, it became a a tool. Absolutely. And um, I think that was really the importance of it. And I think, and Duke, he wasn't the first to do this. He he would say that George Freeth uh, had done this as well. Uh, But this certainly, because of Duke's fame, this got out there and was headlines all over the place absolutely yeah so interesting story really an amazing story yeah um so tell me about duke's kind of later um later career once he ends up back in hawaii and some of his political ambitions and that that part of his life yeah he's he comes back to Hawaii first in about 1929 okay. after after the 28 Olympics uh, he goes back for a little bit in 1932 to try to qualify for the 32 Los Angeles Olympics um, is unsuccessful in that um, and then returns and basically is full time in Hawaii for the rest of his life um, at the time there had been some turmoil Hawaii was starting to really change by this point um um, there was quite a bit of tension racially. There had been a major episode of, of violence between military personnel and, and some Hawaiian people um, regarding a, an alleged rape, which probably did not happen. So there was quite a bit of turmoil there. And Duke was sort of positioned to run as the chef run for sheriff of Honolulu County by the Republican Party. And he was sort of seen, and I think this is valid, as a unifying figure. Somebody that you know, basically everybody could trust. You know, Hawaiians could trust. Right. Haoles could trust. Others could trust, you know, Asian and so forth. A lot of Asian immigrants had come over to work on 
sugar plantations Correct. and that sort of thing? Right. Correct. And in fact, the Asian population was was far exceeding right. uh, others at this time. Even the native population. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So there was this feeling that he sort of represented stability and tradition and uh, he was positioned to run for that and he won and so from the about 1934-35 on until six, 1960 basically when Hawaii becomes a state and eliminates the position that he had won that's his that's his work he's the sheriff um at the same time, in 1939, 1940, he becomes uh, romantically involved with, uh, with the woman who would become his wife, Nadine Alexander, and they marry in 1940. White, white yes, woman, Caucasian? A, a white uh, divorcee who had apparently, uh, according to her, had seen Duke when she was a kid in a magazine and said, oh my God, that's the man I want to marry. And yeah. Sure enough, does. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they, by all accounts, were very different, but also very loving couple at the same time. There was an age difference, and, and she was you know, quite a bit younger, um, but by all accounts, they were a happy couple, even though they were sort of different. Sure. Um, and so that's Duke's life. I mean, he gets involved, he tries to get involved in some business, and doesn't quite, you know, always sort of just misses out. Um, there are two examples. He he was sort of given an early chance to be part of the swim fins, which were invented in the, you know, late 30s, early 40s. And uh, it was uh, a guy who had been an Olympic teammate of Duke's. And that opportunity goes by the wayside. Um Hollywood producers had called. They sort of wanted him to do a, a version of um, sort of what became, let's just say, Hawaii Five O. Yeah. And he negotiated and eventually turned that down. Yeah. So he, he didn't never quite got ahead financially right. until really the '60s, um, when when he gets a promoter behind him and really backs him and and his name, and they start exploiting. And I, I say that. Not in a necessarily a negative way, sure. but they start exploiting his name and as the brand, the Duke Kahanamoku brand. Yeah, and that's Kimo McVeigh, right? Correct. And that's Correct. where Duke's restaurant comes into play and Correct. that sort of thing. Correct. The nightclub becomes sort of the Duke's nightclub, sure. which, which is separate from the Dukes that we know now in Huntington or Malibu or in Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, but that becomes the hottest, you know, spot in Waikiki and. Right. Uh, in part because of Don Ho. Right. So. Yeah, which he brought on as a entertainer, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So there's a lot of kind of tangents and a lot of different arms of, or, you know, branches of the tree that branch out from Duke, obviously. Um, yeah, I was surprised to learn in the book um, 
something I really didn't know, and I guess in hindsight I saw, but I didn't really pay attention to it, which is just all the benefactors that he had in his life. Right. Like you're saying, he's kind of almost super successful a couple of times, but really he was an athlete and a performer, not necessarily a self-promoter, not necessarily a businessman. He just was the performer. And gratefully or thankfully, he had a number of benefactors from Bill Rollins, Doris Duke, which was a romantic partner at some point who has kind of a tobacco legacy. Allegedly romantically involved. We have have to say that. (laughs) You have to say that. I don't. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Arthur Godfrey, Kimo McVeigh later in his life, um, which all just kind of propped him up and... It doesn't seem like anybody really did it to take advantage of him. They all genuinely wanted the best for him and saw opportunities and were able to kind of yeah, support. I, I believe that. I mean, Arthur Godfrey's a great example, and, and, and he's a name that maybe young younger people might not know, but, I mean, he was a huge entertainer at the time, like the biggest star of, of radio and the you know TV is just beginning at that point, and, and, and he's sort of this all-round entertainer guy. And uh, he and Duke hit it off well, and Arthur Godfrey loved Hawaii, went over there all the time, appeared on his shows with, you know, the Hawaiian aloha shirts and that sort of strumming a ukulele and that sort of thing. Um, And, and yeah, Arthur, you know, made big noises in the newspaper saying, you know, Hawaii should just pay Duke $100,000 just to be Duke. Yeah. And, you know... You know, you couldn't quite do that by then because now you're a state and you've got, you know, governors and and politicians involved. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's not it's a little different. Uh, but I think everybody sort of agreed. You yeah, know? totally. Uh, yeah, just fly him out to to these events and so yeah. forth. And in a sense, that that's what Kimo McVeigh adopts. And okay, and, and yeah, he he saw the value of Duke, and he saw that what surfing was becoming. He saw that surfing was not just uh, you know after the Gidget and after all those crazy silly movies of Hollywood, you know, surfing was becoming cool, mm-hmm. and it was becoming its own culture and industry. And there were magazines about it, and and movies, and kids were loving it, and. Kimo was smart enough to, to position Duke as, well, if you want to see where, at, at a time, by the way, when people wanted authentic heroes. Right. They wanted, they didn't want to hear politicians gab because they didn't, we weren't trusting politicians in the 60s and Vietnam era, that sort of thing. We wanted authentic heroes. There was no more authentic hero than Duke Kahanamoku. Right. And when he would come to Huntington or you know, San Diego or wherever, you know, Australia, you know, looking as regal as he did and loving that people were surfing in contests and making money and having fun. That was great. It was a great symbol and a great, uh, great move by both parties to embrace the, the Hawaiian roots of surfing through this guy who was still there. Right. And was the best. Absolutely. Yeah. We started off the conversation um, kind of setting the stage of what Hawaii was like in 1890. Where does uh, Duke leave Hawaii and what does he leave behind? That's a very good question. Um, and I hope I explored that a little bit. You and, did, yeah. And, and I, I think 
it, it in some ways very positive. I mean, you, Hawaii's now not some territory off in the Pacific. It's the 50th state. Yeah. And it's probably, um, in some ways, a, a harbinger of uh, multicultural that we find today, let's say, in California and other mm-hmm. places. I mean, you've got the Asian influence and Hawaiian influence and European influence, etc. Um so you've got this mosaic, as they would say. Sure. Um, you've also got, in in some ways, um, some of the, shall we say, negative sides, maybe overbuilding, as I mentioned before, and tourism that w- was rampant, and people who had been there forever were, were fed up with that. And the natural beauty of Hawaii was, in some ways, in jeopardy, and what to do with what to do about that. Um, and Duke expressed some regret about, you know, that it was overrun. Um, and at the time, again, right at 68, there is a burgeoning uh, nationalism movement among Hawaiian, among Native Hawaiians, where, they're, where they are expressing the anger and dis- displeasure of how what had happened, you know, in the 1890s had really taken, you know, it was American taking over the world. Sure. And so there is this, that's happening as well. There's resentment uh, of, of in among Native Hawaiians um, for for the situation. So it, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, it is. Um, to be honest. And I, I think Duke was a proponent of Hawaii joining America. I, obviously, a lot of his success was because he was an American citizen. Um, but obviously that came with some painful um, side side effects. Yeah. I think, um, you know, we talk about Aloha, and it's almost like it started... Maybe it didn't start with Duke, but it outwardly started with Duke and his traveling the world, like... Aloha existed in Hawaii, but hadn't really expanded beyond Hawaii. So he kind of is the genesis of Aloha in certain ways. And then also is kind of the end of Aloha in certain ways because of the political shifts and cultural shifts. I know that was part of the epilogue of the book was kind of like, you know, it had been overrun and people, even the natives didn't really have that feeling of Aloha anymore. They almost wanted to stiff arm any new tourism and any new building and so right. it almost begins and aloha almost begins and ends with duke well that's that's a that's a, that's that's uh, i wish i could steal that from you now you can <laughs> it's all yours you take yeah. it yeah no no it's a, it's a that's a really astute point and and um and again when i when i set out to write the book i think part of the point was to get away from the mythology right and to and, and, and so there are a lot of people, fans of Duke. Oh, the ambassador of Aloha! Isn't that the greatest thing? And yes, I I agree. It's a beautiful concept that openness and that welcoming. Um, but but you know what? You also have to look at the reality. Right. And the reality is there were some negative side effects. Right. And you have to own that as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it's. I mean, not to not to not to. To, to draw too fine a point, but I mean, when you look at Duke, in a sense, his life really—I mean, it's the—it's the—it's the 
you can trace the history of modern Hawaii through Duke. Right. And that's just, I mean, that's fascinating to yeah. me. That that man just embodies sort of everything that happens in this span. And even, you know, that he touches all these people, even to a, to a degree, a Barack Obama. Right. You know, where, I, I mean, I dug and dug and dug to try to find a, a connection. And, sure. And we found a little, you know, a little nub of one. Yeah. And I, believe me, I called the White House to get a copy. Yeah, <laughs> they they didn't get the message. Apparently. No. <laughs> Send him a tweet. Um, well, excellent. I'm grateful for the book and the research and just having it all kind of teased apart. A lot of stuff that I, I don't know, had awareness of, and then a lot of things that I didn't. So, well, thank you. Dave. Well done. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right, man. Do you remember when we took the dream and then turned it into today together? Dreaming seems to carry me right to where I want to be, wrapped up in your arms and feeling better. Thank you, David Davis, for not only participating in this interview, but also just taking the time to research and write Waterman, The Life and Times of Duke Konomoku. Really appreciate it. If you'd like to learn more about David Davis, his website is daviddavisla.com. And, of course, on surfsplendorpodcast.com, I have links to his website, where you can purchase the book, photos of Duke Konomoku, and everything that we discussed in this episode, surfsplendorpodcast.com. Also, Make sure to follow us on social media at Surf Splendor. I'll post photos of Duke on um, our Instagram feed and Facebook and all that sort of stuff. And then also just want to say thank you for rating and reviewing the show. If you haven't done it already and you listen in iTunes or Stitcher, um, go ahead and leave a review there and rate it. And that really just helps our show's ranking. It helps other people to find the show, which, again, helps this thing pick up momentum and um, allows us to continue to get great guests on the show. So do your part. We'll do our part by producing the content. All right? Thank you very much. This is your host, David Scales, saying thank you and reminding you, until next week when I see you again, catch a couple waves and shred on. Eagles will fly. I love you more than the stars in the sky. I love you, girl. Yes, I love you, girl.